This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show, the Happy New Year post-holiday Joan Hamburg Show. Now, I know that you, like me, we are sick of COVID. We are sick of COVID. I have to tell you, my son John, his wife Christina, and their daughter Stella came in over the holidays. They live in Los Angeles. And of course, they came in, things were not getting better when it came to COVID. And because everything sort of in New York was closed down and all the plans we had, taking the kid to a radio city and theater and all the maybe once a year things that you do when you come to New York were all canceled. So I was sitting with my granddaughter and she turned to me and said, Grandma Joan, you know what I hope? And what I said to Stella, she said, I hope that before I get to whatever's left of my childhood, I won't have to talk about COVID morning, noon, and night. And, you know, I was with someone and Stella, and they said, oh, my gosh, that's so precocious. And I said, that's so sad that 9- and 10-year-old kids, younger and older, too, this is their world. This is what they talk about, think about. It's just, and it's not just us, it's everywhere. It's all over. So we're all going to fervently hope that if we hang in a couple more weeks, because we don't know what's real and what's not real anymore. Every day there's a conflicting message from the so-called leaders, from the public health people, from the CDC, from all of them. Isolate five days, 10 days, do this, do that. And then I'm watching New Year's. Here we're told most of us, or many of us, opted to cancel, of course, whatever we had with all those dire warnings that you can catch it in a minute on the air. And even though it's not as awful as other variations, it's still not a good thing to get. Who was going to do anything? And I felt so sorry for my friends in the restaurant business. They were saying one cancellation after another. And everyone was affected. My in-laws, my daughter-in-law's family does a lovely Christmas Eve. We, we do it together. We had a private room and, um, a lovely Italian restaurant opposite Carnegie Hall and then out of the group, a very small group, people were exposed, one didn't feel well, one was sick. So, of course, we canceled that too. So, we did what so many of you did. We stayed home. Our friends and neighbors, who were also, you know, incredibly careful, not that we know what that means anymore, isolating, came over for dinner my daughter Liz, who was not going to be with her friends this year, made a fabulous lobster, shrimp, scallop, mussel risotto that was incredible. One of the best things I've ever had. And we had this gorgeous dinner. We drank a toast. We turned on CNN and watched all the drunken anchors frolicking on New Year's Eve, like, what's that about? But, you know, it was distracting from the real world. And then we can all together only hope that there is an end to this, that small businesses can raise their heads, 
restaurants can welcome us without us feeling incredibly anxious. No, we're still eating if we eat out at all outside. And believe me, I don't care how many heaters they have. It's cold. But we're going to take your mind off all the bad things and talk about all the good things. We have such a great show. Sharon Gless, remember Cagney? All the wonderful TV shows, Queer as Folk, Burn Notice. It's amazing. Anyway, I loved her new book. I got such a kick out of it. Apparently there were complaints. She's coming on. And then a remarkable book on Eleanor Roosevelt. We've got such good stuff planned for you. And very good stories, too. Everyone is stressed. I'm going to give you a little meditation thing that you can do just using your hand to help you as a breathing exercise. So I have a lot. So don't go anyway, anywhere, I mean, because we all need each other. Hang in, and I'll be back with all of this and more. I'm Joan Hamburg, and of course, your favorite radio station, WABC. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I am excited because I am a big fan of Sharon Glass, who has finally written her memoir. Apparently, there were complaints and I can't tell you what a kick I got out of this book. It <laughs> it took me through such great times. And when everyone, I'm so sick of virus, morning, noon, and night. I know. That, right, to, to read, apparently there were complaints about <laughs> Sharon, about her family, about Cagney and Lacey, queer as folk, burn notice, and wait, your husband just mentioned one more. What one did I leave out? The Trials of Rosie O'Neill. Oh, yes. I didn't want to forget It's, it's that a series one. he created for me right after. Okay. But I loved hearing about a different Hollywood and when there were players who had contracts and life was just totally different. But explain. I'm curious, Sharon. What made you at this time decide... You want to do a book and share your family, warts and all. <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth is, Joan, um, I went into uh, CBS, uh, my home of Cagney and Lacey. Right. Many years later, after I'd done my seventh series, I can't remember. But anyway, they asked to meet me, knowing that the series I was shooting was about to end. And... Nina Tassler, the head of CBS, says, welcome home, Sharon. I was so touched. I thought, God, this is mm. wonderful. And so I sat for an hour waiting for them to offer me a series. And at the end of the hour, Nina says, Sharon, you know, we own Simon & Schuster. I said, I didn't know that. She said, yes, and you have a book in you. I said, Nina, I'm, I really, I've never written. She said, I, I know that, but you're a storyteller. So... She offered me, she, Simon Schuster, the president, called me the next day, and I waited a year, and I went to see him, and I read one chapter to him, and that's how I got my, and I, he signed me. And you and, did, um, I, that's the part. <laughs> I, I came up with the title first, um, and it was an expression I used to use about my drinking, and, you know, I'd, I'd always make jokes about, about it, and so I... Apparently, there were complaints with something that I had said earlier that always made Barney laugh. And I said, that's my title. And the title informed. Right. Even but living in Hancock Park in fancy L.A. doesn't 
being complained about. No, but you know what? It's <laughs> one, it's one thing to say, you know, you've got a book in you. It's another thing for you to go home and write a book. That's oh. that so hard to sit there and write a book. It's Joe, like, and I never really enjoyed being a writer. And that's why it took me so long. But I do now enjoy being an author because I yeah. get to talk to you. <laughs> no, and it's, and it's interesting when you write your life and you look back and, hey, it's okay. It's really cathartic. Yeah, it actually, it was. It was not my intention. But I realized as I was writing the last chapter, which was actually the hardest, um, that... I did it with, uh, I did it by, I had to look in the mirror and I had no, no booze and no cigarettes to put a screen up, you know, right. around my heart. And um, I, I became proud of myself by the end. Um, and I, I really, I've not, I've, I've really had a wonderful life, but um, there were a lot of complaints. And um, I had a grandmother who was daunting. Yeah, what a character she is. She's her yeah, own book. But she, she was, she was, was a character, and she was, she was like, like out of a movie. Like Helen Hayes would be playing. Um, but she and I was her favorite of seventeen grandchildren. But that made her the roughest on me. Mm. And she held the purse strings. And I don't have to tell anyone. I'm sure who's listening. If someone else holds the purse strings, you have to dance. Right, and they did dance. The family oh, danced, boy. and you I and did. you learned early on how to and make I sure learned grandma. That I needed to earn my own living. As long as someone else was holding my the purse strings, I had to to um, cooperate. And I'm not and you saying did. that the the decisions I made in my life have all been stellar, but um, at least they were my choices. And it was interesting. Here you come from this L.A. family. I mean, I never knew anyone who was from L.A. You have five <laughs> generations there. And right. even when you were a kid and went to boarding school and gained a little weight, which everyone gains at boarding school or college or anything else. I mean, we eat our way through angst and anxiety. Right. Gained a lot of weight. Right, a lot. It was your <laughs> grandmother that you worried about. Well, she she locked me up after I got out of boarding school. She locked me up in her house in Carmel, and um, well, put I mean, you, you on a diet. She put me on a diet because I was having to make. In those days, they had debutante balls. It's, it's embarrassing now, but no, they um, still have them. Oh wow! Um, anyway, my grandmother said, "I'll be damned if you're going to walk out there looking like Moby Dick in a white <laughs> dress." So. She locked me up and took 40 pounds off of me. That was her big complaint. Um, but the book discusses the emotion of the journey with her and kind of the joy of walking out that night and showing her my dress. Because it was very, very hard at the time. It makes me cry just to talk about it. No, and you know, you, when you describe that, you know, when I was reading that, and what it was like, it brought me back to one of my college roommates who had a similar situation, you know, where she had to please the mother and the grandma. And right. before they came on visiting day, I still remember we had something in those days called Merry Widows. Oh, sure. Which, remember the strapless? I used where... to sleep in mine when I was young because <laughs> it was too hard to put on in the morning. So I put Ex it on the night before. Exactly. And I had it took two of us to strap her in the Merry Widow before oh, visiting sure. day. So the parents and the grandma wouldn't think she was as chubby as she was. I know. So, I mean, we all go The trick through. is it does shove everything up or down. So if it, you don't get away with it. You no, know, I just like you don't get away with cheating on food with grandma's eagle eyes, you know, thinking you pulled a fast one. I'm talking exactly. to Sharon Gless. Apparently there were complaints, her brand new book about coming of age in Hollywood, deciding, despite a lot of people saying, no, 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 becoming an actress. She knew from the time she was just a young kid 
that this is something she had to do. And the studio system was so different in those days. I loved reading about it. You became a contract player. Well, that Thank wasn't you. easy. No, right? well, it was, it was, I, I didn't know I was going to be getting that contract. I just, as I say in the book, this magical thing happened as a mistake on stage one night. I was in a little play, just folding chairs. We didn't charge anybody, you know, um, ran two nights, but I made a terrible mistake the opening night. And there was a man sitting in the audience that thought it was so funny. He called me from Universal Studios and and uh, introduced me to the head of talent. And I got a contract there. Seven years, uh, 10 years. There's seven year contracts, but I was there 10 years. And now I'm the last, I was the last person to leave. Wow. Well, the last contract there in Hollywood. It's, it's really hard to believe that, but that was the time. And also Sharon, who worked all the time in Kojak and the Rockford Files on Bob Newhart on all our great shows. And then not happily, but sort of being pushed into it, playing Cagney on Cagney <laughs> and Lacey, where you won every award sort of known to man and the trials of Rosie O'Neill, queer as folk. And it went <laughs> on and on. I mean, most people, my actor friends, Wait, say uh, every Monday we have that thing in the pit of our stomach. So am I going to work this week? Am I going to get called? What's going to happen? And you yes. worked all the time. I've just been very, very blessed. Please know I do not take this casually. I just, when I decided it's really what I wanted to do, the world opened up. I, it, I consider it magic or if you dream really, really hard, you know. Uh, right. somebody's out there who's listening and, and, and picks you. And then to walk into Cagney and Lacey, which I turned down twice, as Barney says, actors are not always the best judges of material. Um, right, and he was, a, that was his show. Very much so, yes. And um, I, I was very, obviously, that was the most important show, probably because it took my life totally into a new direction. And apparently changed many lives that you did I'm proud of it right and it changed the lives of a lot of people because your show dealt with topics that no one dealt with and Ever. that wasn't openly discussed like that and there you are in front of what 30 million people talking I know. about in those days right. there were only three networks you know yeah I know. and and so we had i think 30 30 million viewers which is astounding and we dealt with subject matters, Joan, that had never been touched, just I mean, spoken of. Sexism, uh, breast cancer, spousal abortion, abortion uh, alcoholism. I mean, Cagney took a real tumble on that show. Right. But it was the first time they'd ever had a hero of the series fall from grace. But you did, did. so much. That's right. The alcoholism thing which you write about is was a big deal because it was so real that you couldn't believe you were watching it and it and it turned out you didn't believe it was you but it turned out that character suddenly really became you and yes. you had and you had a deal I did I mean I I, I did not go lightly to that dark night is that the book? um but I Yes, Ronnie Meyer, my agent, took me to dinner one night and just nailed me. He said, I think mm -hmm. you're alcoholic. And, um, he just called me the other day read the book. Said, I don't remember being that hard on you. I said, you were. Um, uh, but I, did, I, I didn't see it in myself. And Joan, I need to say something. I was cold, stone, sober when I did those scenes on Cagney. Mm. I was not drunk I was not drinking when I did those scenes and I it's important that people know that because I had, I was meeting with Maggie Smith one day and she said I love those drunk scenes of you and Cagney Lacey best I've seen on TV and I said Maggie I was not drunk when I did those scenes press is saying is life imitating art and she said oh honey you can't she do did. that kind of work to not be sober 
and and look what happened. Of course you did that kind of work. And that was what made you different from so many other performers. You put so much into Cagney, into every part, with so many layers, that it was real. And that's your gift. And that's why from the time you were just a kid, (laughs) you worked. You had that gift that people saw that. And when it's so hard for so many people, right, to get work, you got right in there. I'm so sorry. I didn't start working as an actress until I was 28 years old. Right. I entered the business late in life, but the head of Universal said, Sharon, I think you've been acting all your life. Now we're just going to pay you for it. (laughs) That's... (laughs) <laughs> that's a great gift too. And then it was on Cagney and Lacey that, and you always had loves and relationships, but the big one came along at a different stage in life. That's right. And we you're, you're love referring you. to my husband, Barney. To your husband, Barney. My now husband, Barney. Of course, you're now and I hope forever husband, Barney. Forever, that's right. <laughs> I introduced him as my first husband, and he introduces me as his last wife, please God. You know what? (laughs) I love that. And I have a friend who does that, too. He says, you know what? I had a lot of wives, but this one is the best. The last one is the keeper. So It's been 30 years now, but it was was rough going. I tell the story, and I tell the truth. Yeah. um, Of how we came together, which was very difficult. And he and, was your um, boss, too. He was my boss. He created Cagney and Lacey. He was the executive producer. Right. Um, he was the first feminist I ever met. And? That, that I knew of. And, and the thing with being married to a feminist is he says things like, you want an equality, open your own door. <laughs> go, well, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm still suffering from the Cinderella syndrome. <laughs> women my but age definitely want equality and fought for it but we also when we were young we still were sort of believed that Walt Disney was telling the truth about relationships right you know we, we objected objected to a lot of stuff but if the trucker right. didn't whistle on the street we were <laughs> mortally offended <laughs> <laughs> that's right I mean it was a brave it was a brave new time but it's one thing when it's your boss and he has to tell you what to do in many ways or how to do it or what's good and what's not so good. And right. then to fall for him, which and you I did. did. You know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't mind. I, I couldn't stand him when I first met him. But, um, uh-huh. Then I gained tremendous respect for him as a producer. I saw what he was doing. We had no idea the impact we were having because Tyne and I didn't bar any doing. But Tyne and I worked on a sound stage. It's not like we were on stage on in theater, people applauding. We had work to do. We were on a sound stage for 12, 18 hours a day. And we didn't realize the impact we were having out there where other women's lives were being changed because of uh, the scripts that Barney was. Um, not authoring, but, you know, controlled. Right. Many of our writers were women. Many of our, not many, but several of our directors were women. And that was unusual. Yeah, I was going to say, no one did that. No. And while we were on the air, I know you didn't ask me this, but while we were on the air, the six years, no other woman won the Emmy. Now, time won four and I won two. I'm okay with it, Joan. Mm. Um, But the the good news is that I don't know if we won it because we were so great. We won it because we had the material. And in the 80s, no one was writing for women. Right. And there it was. And there it was. And it, it was life-changing for you. And it was really life-changing for the industry. And I love the story in the book when Cagney and Lacey, a big hit show was canceled for obviously no reason. Right. And what you guys did with Barney as the leader to get that show back. 
he wrote, it, it does show the power of the people. He wrote, uh, he got all the letters that people had written in saying how upset they were. And he got them all together himself. Got times and mine and his own. And he wrote a letter to each person asking them to write a letter to their affiliate station and to the New York Times, I believe. And um, all these letters, people responded. They were all sent to CBS in Los Angeles, and they became overwhelmed. And it shows that people have a choice. They have a vote. They can, and they, the people brought us back. By the thousands everywhere. Oh, hundreds of thousands, apparently. Yeah. But they had no choice but to pay attention. I know and CBS it, said, I guess we made a mistake. So they had to read you times in my contract. That was sweet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at that, taste us to discuss money. But the nice thing was, at that time, we became the highest paid women in television. Right, which was extraordinary. And never Sharon, asked me. Yeah, but well, of course not. Everyone was still deferential. You were happy to get it. Oh, I'm so lucky. You know, <laughs> it, it's. I didn't even think to ask what the men made. I was just so happy that we, we right? were brought back. We were the winners. I'm lucky. When you say to a guy, how did you get there or what contributed to your success? Well, they'll modestly say, I'm gifted. I'm brilliant. I had this. I had that. A woman would say, luck. I'm lucky. You know, rather than say, you know, anything else. But Sharon, when when you decided that maybe working at, in those in this industry that way, and when you do a daily show, it's a killer all the time. You should was, know. Was that what was that like for you? Was it hard? Have you adapted, or do you want to go back and do something? I want to go back. I love every minute of it, Joan. Every minute I was on a set. <clears throat> Pardon me. I don't remember getting tired. We'd work sometimes 18 hours a day. But I just, pardon me, got off on it. I love to work. I've, I've done many series now. I've been blessed. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, and I, I'm just, I've had a wonderful time. I never got bored on a set. The show wasn't good. Um, there was one show where I did a four-part or guest positive. I was unhappy. Um, but never, ever, ever again. So I ever, I, I just, I love it. And I love a TV series. It's You have a family that's with you, hopefully, for years. Um, you just, you do become a family. Okay, and well, we're it. ready. We're ready for you to come back. Do you keep up with uh, Tyne Daly? I talk to Tyne Daly almost every day. Now, since That's COVID, great. we started checking in with each other. And um, Joan Tyne's mother had a great expression. Sweat makes a great cement. <laughs> and Tyne Daly and I sweat together for six years against yeah. all odds, being called names. Um, uh, and... And we're cemented for life. Which is wonderful. And that was part of what worked on that show, which originally had not worked. That that connection, that compatibility, we believed every minute of it. Oh, and, thank you. No, but and that's the truth. All right, so we're ready for you to come back. Thank you. Well, I've done nine. I had someone told me. I was doing an interview that I had done nine series. I didn't realize that. And Betty White had done 10. Mm. And I said, well, I want to step up there with Betty. But now Betty's not with us. She'll always be no. with us. Um, but anyway, I have another one in me. So Okay. I'm and in. even, Sharon, this book could turn into a series. You know, that young girl from that family with the grandpa who was the lawyer to every major player and leader in Hollywood. And her life is a great adventure. We love that. When you Thank see you. TV, when you see Thank TV you. shows, remember like Emily in Paris or shows like that, 
Hey, how about Sharon in L.A.? Uh, Which that would is be much, much more It'd be a realistic. miniseries. Yeah. Barney can do it. <laughs> I, I tried to talk him into, but he says he's done. He likes well, the tropics. I know, but he could do it in the tropics. Yeah. So, well, we'll talk about that next time. I love the book. I love visiting with you. Joan, Come visit I'm again. I'm so thrilled. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Sharon Gless, apparently there were complaints. Honestly, <laughs> it cheered me up. I didn't think about COVID. I thought about nothing but what was going on and what Hollywood was like in those days and what it was like to be an actress, what it was like to come from a family that looked on the outside like perfect and had all these issues. And here she is, taking us by the hand on a wonderful journey. Congratulations and enjoy. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. All the best. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. More to come. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I read an extraordinary book, Eleanor, by David Michaelis. And you probably know David. He's a wonderful author, bestseller, prize winner. He's written The Schultz and Peanuts, N.C. Wyeth, other books. And this is going to become so much a part of all of our lives. And I'll tell you what... I loved about Eleanor more than she was one of my heroes when I was coming of age. But it reminded me that people grow, people can do extraordinary things, and even in the times we're living through, there is possibility as we grow along with Eleanor Roosevelt from her early years. And in this book, there's so much that one doesn't know starting from the very beginning of her life. What a terrible childhood. But David, your connection too was so extraordinary. Your mother actually worked as a producer for one of Eleanor Roosevelt's shows. I I grew up with Eleanor thinking I must be somehow related to Eleanor Roosevelt. She was a presence in my childhood because my mother was a producer on Prospects of Mankind, which was the uh, public television uh, program monthly program that Eleanor um, was doing at the time up in Boston, and uh, it was filmed at Brandeis every month. And my mother would fly down to New York to meet with Mrs. Roosevelt at East 74th Street, where she lived then, and go through the script and go through the guests and go through especially her closet, where my mother, being the only woman on the show, uh, only female producer, had to pick out which dress Eleanor would wear that month. And she had so few dresses at that point in her life that my mother always had the choice was was pretty anemic, but that Mrs. Roosevelt was one of the extraordinary um, figures at the time coming into pre- uh, public television, out of radio, out of her long experience as a communicator. So it was a very successful early, even before the the, the French Chef with Julia Child. It was the earliest right. show on WGBH that was that got an audience going. And when you think about it, how Eleanor Roosevelt, as a kid, because she had such a horrible childhood and had no real she had role models in terms of her uncle who mm-hmm. was president and other things but he was a girl who could barely speak she was self-conscious she was shy she had no sense of self and yet through this troubled childhood and often she achieved extraordinary in fact more than most presidents 
I think one of the things when I looked at her childhood that fascinated me was uh, on uh, one single topic was fear. She had enormous amount of fear. I think you would it was a childhood from hell. Her father dying of alcoholism, drinking himself to death, who deep, dearly loved her, and she re- remained for the rest of her life enthralled to her memory of him. Her mother, um, highly narcissistic, highly uh, uh, preoccupied with her own social world and her own ambitions, was not had no time for Eleanor. Eleanor was a great disappointment to her. Eleanor's feeling, I think, growing up was that she could never fulfill um, her parents' dreams of what she should or could be, and, and always was disappointing. She felt um, her both of her parents, and in in a in a constant state of fear and anxiety. I think today she'd be you know m- medicated six different ways um, and diagnosed with all sorts of anxiety disorder. Right. What she did was she figured out step by step through her life how to get over those things by pushing herself to do what she needed to do. And World War One was a great uh, gift to her because it, it allowed her as a Red Cross volunteer and as a uh, political wife of the of the then uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt. She, she went into um, uh, wards at St. Elizabeth's dealing with uh, sailors just back with, with shell shock from, from the war and, and began to really come to grips with her own fears and her own anxiety and learn that if you do the thing you think you cannot do, you can overcome slowly your own your own notions of of, of the world um, uh, and it, and its and its dangers. I think Eleanor's childhood is the defining uh, factor, but I think it's also in, in in as much as it created the Eleanor we now know. Um, but I one of the reasons I wrote uh, this book is because there was no one volume biography of Eleanor, and I think to see her childhood in context of her whole life, to see the whole arc of her life. Is, is what you really need with Eleanor because it is such an extraordinarily um, varied life from, from her childhood in the Victorian era to her, uh, to her life as first lady of the world in, in the atomic age after the war, after FDR's death. So a single volume life was needed, and um, I could see that the first time I walked into the FDR library at Hyde Park where – you know, the, the, the gift shop is dominated by the massive tomes of Blanche Weiss and Cook's really good three-volume biography. And, and then, Fra- you know, uh, uh, um, Eleanor and Franklin by, by Joe Lash, but nothing else. And nothing that shows you the, the, whole, the whole world of Eleanor Roosevelt so, as, as she right. experienced it. And I think that's what I was trying to do. And, and during those times. And the fact is that she was so far ahead of her times it almost reads like fiction when she married her cousin who was handsome and debonair and and no one really took him seriously but people took the fact that this good-looking charming guy married this sort of homely a little awkward young woman and how as time went on and he had affairs she accepted all this it was extraordinary well, How I think that she their relationship to function. Yeah, absolutely. And their relationship, um, which began, as you as you point out, with with this cu- two fifth cousins marrying each other. I will say, I think that the reason Frank, I've I have long felt that the reason Franklin Roosevelt uh, married Eleanor or and and felt the way he felt about her was partly because she believed in him, and she supported very strongly. He needed after his mother, who was his great supporter and champion, he needed someone who was going to believe in him, and she did. And at the same time, she was the niece of the president of the United States, and it's something that is very important, I think, to see through Franklin's eyes. Is that he was? This was a pretty interesting package to him. Uh, she was. She had beautiful blonde hair. She had sparkling blue eyes, a dazzling smile. She was deeply insecure and shy. Yes, but at 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 Christmas, at at different times during the year, she brought Franklin Roosevelt to the White House. You know, on her on Eleanor's arm came Franklin. Right young Franklin Roosevelt to the White House to, to, to idolize with, as Eleanor did too, um, Uncle Ted or Cousin Ted to Franklin. And Teddy Roosevelt was, Theodore Roosevelt in the White House was a, was a dazzling figure. And, and, uh, and I think it was where they both learned their first lessons in, in the robust idea that Theodore Roosevelt had, that government had a place in people's lives. It's where that really began for them. But their, their marriage, as you point out, is one of the most fascinating in American history. It's very contemporary. Yeah. I think people today really can see that it's one of those marriages that, that gets along despite itself um, and where it becomes a partnership and where they really, really understand each other uh, deeply and at the same time give each other an enormous amount of freedom to do what they had to do both personally and 
and in their intimate lives. Um, it's really remarkable. It's, a, it's, it's very heartening, actually, I find, in the end, uh, to see what Franklin and Eleanor were capable of doing despite their many differences. Right, and despite the, the times, it was almost shocking. And, of course, yeah. there are so many tired mother-in-law jokes, but she truly <laughs> had the mother-in-law from hell yeah. because, you know, Franklin was so devoted to his mother, and the mother-in-law ran the show in many cases, but there's something about her that recognized something in Eleanor that yeah. she really made a difference in her life. That's right. Sarah Delano Roosevelt gets a pretty bad rap, and she sometimes deserves it, uh, but mostly she's a pretty strong figure in the, in the, in, on Eleanor's side when it, when it really came to it, especially when, as you pointed out earlier, Franklin's earliest um, known affair uh, in his marriage with Lucy Mercer, who was Eleanor's social secretary. Uh, Franklin fell in love with her during the war, and when Eleanor discovered it, she offered Franklin a divorce. It was really Sarah, uh, Franklin's mother, Eleanor's mother-in-law, who said, you know, no. No, you said to both of them individually, no, you, this is not going to happen this way. First of all, Delano's did not get divorced. Second of all, if you're going to be president of the United mm -hmm. States, you're not going get, to get to be president in those days by divorcing and then marrying a, 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 a Catholic who, who was in no sense the iron sort of frame on which to stretch a, a presidential career the way Eleanor was. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, I noticed, you know, when, when in the earliest part of their, uh, she and Franklin, when they were first falling in love, and he had lost an election as a Harvard sophomore, i sorry, as a Harvard senior, um, she said to him, you know, you have this next election coming up for the, for the next uh, uh, thing in the, in the class. Send me your, you know, send me your speech. She wanted to see his speech, put some marks on it, Tell him he was saying this the right way or the wrong way. She, she was right in there from the very beginning, supporting him in his, in his single-minded ambition to become the president of the United States, which, as, you, as we remember, was, you know, was nearly, nearly derailed forever by polio. But to come back from that, right. to come back she and become what they both became, which were leader, global leaders, leaders not just of the United, in the United States, but, but of the world. And what was so amazing to us the readers was that you see the development of this human being not a perfect person and her views grew along the way when it came to race she was not a star in her early youth she had a lot to learn and she did when it came to that and with women's rights all these things she grew into and literally changed the world I couldn't agree more, and I think that transformation uh, from from the early years, uh, where you see you see anti-Semitism in her writing, you see uh, her slow walking, uh, even in the early days as first lady, you see her slow walking integration. Um, she was doing the best she could as, as she went. I think where Eleanor's greatness comes is from her absolute ruthless honesty with when facing herself um, her willingness to look at herself clearly to know where her, her faults were and and to not necessarily have the answers to to, to not cling to what was safe um, to not resolve every issue but to to remain open and listening and and able to always recognize in people the individual that, that was right before her. Um, you know, it was one of the great themes of her life that she saw people not as parts of causes or, 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 or as part political uh, people. She saw everyone as an individual, and I think it's one of her great gifts. And she, she does this when she's even figuring out one of the most complex things in the world, which is how do you, how do you define human rights for, for over 50 nations uh, with all their different cultural differences, with all their different uh, uh, languages and, and beliefs and systems, how do you create a document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights after the war, that will define what it is to be a human being and what rights we have? I think Eleanor was uniquely qualified by that point to, to bring that document into, into fruition at the United Nations to create the expectation that we could, for the at least foreseeable future, expect these rights to be given to humans right. and not allow another World War II, another Holocaust, another uh, 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 catastrophe, which the atomic bomb was, was signaling at the time, that, that, we were, that we were not necessarily in control of our fate as a planet. And I think that's why Eleanor remains to this day one of the figures that we look to um, for 
if not answers, at least to, to, to understand where we are in terms of a world that does not necessarily lend itself to our control anymore. We have to know how to work together in a community, do this together. This, these were the themes of her life, and it's, and it's why I think her life remains really vivid to us. Eleanor by David Michaelis. And, you know, um, when you read the book and you read about their lives and Roosevelt having affairs early on, Eleanor, bisexual, but, you know, who talked about anything like that in those days? And the press was fairly discreet. But it's all in there. Now, you knew more than most people because your mother had worked for her, but still... People are shocked to hear these things because it wasn't headlines every day. Right. Well, it's all about context. I mean, I think the great gift that biography can give you, it gives me even just researching and writing it, and I hope it gives the reader. You get a sense that the context for these things that we understand now, for instance, when I began, I always sort of thought – of Eleanor is kind of like the uh, the gay Thomas Jefferson. Um, in other words, she's a figure that we all thought we knew something about. But in fact, when you get down into the into the underbrush and start reading her letters, in, in for instance, to Lorena Hickok, the a- AP reporter that she fell in love with uh, right. during Franklin Roosevelt's first uh, first run for for the presidency, you really begin to see what this was, and and you understand it was it, that that Eleanor was not a lifelong lesbian in the in in a way that she would have identified that way or can be identified, but that this was a love relationship. And it was a relationship that was also eroticized and, and, and was a full-blown love, love affair that actually went on for about seven years in its intensity, but they remained friends there all, all through their lives, Eleanor and Lorena Hickok. But that it's not a, it's not a moment at which, um, by today's standards, she would be, or when it was first written about in the 80s and 90s, this wasn't a coming out for Eleanor Roosevelt. This was, this was a moment where she was finally connecting with someone on a level that she had missed for so long. She was finally at a level of intimacy with someone where she could trust and be trusted, love and be right. loved. And that's where you really begin to understand her as a person, is, is how much of her life she was disappointed by men, how much of her life she was disappointed by people uh, close to her, how much she was looking for, what she craved, right. and what her lifelong uh, uh, quest was, which was which was to be close, to, to understand, to be seen, to be heard, uh, to be to be known, and I think all women felt that to some extent, and that's why, in a way, her her situation was universal. Um, you know, I think it's it's so important to remember with Franklin and Eleanor, I mean Eleanor and Franklin, that they were they were really quite normal people in a sense of living in a completely abnormal way at an abnormal time. I mean, they, they were they were very neighborly. You know, they were very easygoing. Yes, they were privileged. Yes, they were aristocrats. Yes, they were people that today you'd see, you know, in, but they were very, very recognizable and understandable to people. And that's why they had this gift. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, certainly as a politician, and Eleanor had this gift of connecting uh, to people up and down the social classes. And, and they weren't stuck in their class. Polio and other and other strangenesses that had happened yeah, to them in the their life. The great equalizer. Yeah, great equalizer, exactly. That's the word. And, and also, I think um, they both really captured, I mean, they captured media, and they captured... Eleanor it was the first first lady to have a have a syndicated column. Her radio, her voice on radio. I mean, I'm talking to the first lady of New York Radio right now. You understand this, Joan. She was able to connect to people through their media, through the, the newsreels, through her her voice on the radio connected to people in ways that no first lady had ever done before. And very few since, by the way. I mean, she really became, you know, it's become our our trope, in a way, with first ladies that they have an issue. You know, Michelle, for Michelle Obama, it was nutrition. For Laura Bush, it was uh, it was literacy. Eleanor was almost too holistic to have only right. one. You know, she, she was sort of an equal opportunity first lady in terms of having many, many different causes. And I think that um, if you remember that she was the one who first addressed the United States on Pearl Harbor Sunday, the president came to. The Congress the next day to declare a war and, you know, December 7th, a date which will live in infamy, that great speech. That's the next day. That night, Sunday night, after the attack, when America was at its most fearful, at its right, most apprehensive, reeling. that's when Eleanor was going to go on the radio for her Sunday night over the cups uh, radio program sponsored by a coffee maker. And she went on the air and she said, 
We've been bombed. This has happened. We're under siege in, 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 in not just in Pearl Harbor, but in Guam and in, in the Philippines, where we, we, we are in an unprecedented situation here. And I depend on you, the people of the United States, to remain calm. And she appealed to them as a mother, saying she had children who were already in the war zone. Uh, her sons were already on naval ships in danger. She had a, a daughter on the West Coast, which was at the time seen to be a, spot, a, a really high, highly dangerous spot. And she came very carefully, one by one by one, through all the issues and came to people and said, I believe in you, in the absolute solidity of the people of the United States. And it was a calming and incredibly balancing and stabilizing uh, thing for her to do at that moment. And <clears throat> I always feel with Eleanor that she's the person who will step forward. And I felt this in my own life as a child when I saw her the one time I saw her on, on, the, uh, on the set at, uh, at WGBH. Uh, this was someone who brought goodness. You know, this is a solid gold human being who brought goodness into the room when she walked in. And you felt it. You know, you but felt you, that. But, you know, David, what is so interesting to me is that when she spoke – or when she did talk to the American public, mm -hmm. people believed her. They needed her. They yeah. wanted that. Where today, it makes you realize what we're missing by all this nonsense that goes yeah. on. Yeah. We've lost sight of everything. Has there been a first lady, you think, that has come anywhere close to the kind of influence and power which she didn't even want in the beginning that she attained? Well, not. I mean, on a basic level, Eleanor Roosevelt was first lady for, of the United States for 12 years. So that alone gave her a, a, a duration that, that is, exceeds everyone else. I, I think the current I think the current first lady, Mrs. Biden, is doing a, one, a wonderful job. I mean, I, I you know, this is we're finally back to someone who cares. And I think that's an important, really important part of this. Um, I think there have been other first ladies who have done remarkable things in, in individual areas and in and individual moments, but nothing like Eleanor's widespread and holistic uh, approach. I think the thing also about Eleanor was that when you walked in, when she walked into a room, you didn't just feel her sense that she cared and that she would care about you, which she did convey, but that she cared about the country and that she cared about the United States as an idea and that she knew the Constitution and she had read it and she understood the values of the people, that we the people are the three most important words in the Constitution and that she brought that back to you and she demanded of you the obligation that you bring to your community, not to the country. Uh, but to your community, to the person next door, to the person across the drugstore counter, to the person on the corner, that you bring to the people around you this sense that we are in this together. And that's what she was able to do. Uh, there's nothing like that. That's our strength in this country when we can pull together. It's our great weakness when we pull apart the way we have and the exactly. way much of Eleanor's um, challenge was during times that were as hard as the one we're going through now. And that's why I think her ability to go one by one by one, person by person, and say, we're in this together, we the people, and, and I depend on you, you the people of the United States, to remain solid, to remain together, to pull together. All that is, I mean, that's what leadership, and, that, and that's what leadership is, that's what she gave. Um, she did it quite naturally, because it's where she came from, it's who she was, it wasn't a put on. You know, she wasn't someone studying the notes on her speeches. They just came right. right out of her. And she asked us to be more imaginative. She asked us to be um, more kind. She asked us to be trusting of ourselves. Th those are the things a parent asks you and, 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 and encourages you to do. They were very parental, and I think that we're, we're missing that a bit. I think we've lost, the tra lost track um, of, of where our leaders fit into our you know, psychic lives in a way, uh, our emotional lives, um, because we've been so alienated from them. Uh, by so many things. And I, and I think that Eleanor was, was always, you know, when Franklin Roosevelt died, when Eleanor died, th these were moments at which people felt they'd lost a family member. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I still can remember my mother when Roosevelt died, mm. almost screaming on the street, crying yeah. hysterically. Incredible. But, you know, yeah. the, the thing is, the Roosevelts had um, six children, one passed away. Mm, early yeah. on and they, imagine even those children because their mother who, who gave them a lot of autonomy and freedom and everything else 
wasn't really around a lot because she was constantly on the road or going to wherever she was needed. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and as well, Eleanor, who was very aware of herself and her own faults, would have been the first to say she, she'd been a complicated mother because she didn't have one, of course, herself. And she didn't, she didn't know. Right. She didn't know. But she, would, she had, a, she had a, a great fault when she was younger, which was that when she was angry or when she was hurt or resentful, she would withdraw into a – she'd clam up. She, she'd go into a cold – you know, withdrawn place. And her kids said it was just hell on them. It was I'm miserable. Sure. And of course, as, as it would be. And, and, and she learned out of, and, um, but it was one of those um, things that, that just dominated the house when they were young and they never forgot. But Eleanor always transforming out of what she had come from was very aware of that and became actually a wonderful grandmother. And I was touched. She was a wonderful mother-in-law herself. Her daughters-in-law remember her so fondly. She really committed herself to them as people, as friends, um, and, and was kind and, and generous. And they, they, each of them had different stories to tell about that. And I, I was really touched that she had taken the lesson of her own life with her own mother-in-law and resolved to be a, a good one on her, you know, on, on, on her watch. Right. Thank you so much, David. Great job. Joan, thank you for, I gotta say you, your reading of this book and of this story and your understanding of it through your life is so valuable and thank you. And you are the first lady of New York radio and I can't thank tell you. you how flattered I am that, that you would have time for this. So thank you. We loved having you on. Much appreciated. The book available online everywhere books are sold, and it's really a very important book to read. And I'm telling you guys, it reads like fiction. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WAVC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Thank you so much for joining me on this Sunday and, of course, the Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And the show is podcast, so if you miss something, don't worry. And the other thing I want to tell you is that we have another podcast. Let me tell you our original podcast, and we've got great stuff. I'm going to tell you about something that made me a salad eater, a product that I had at a friend's house and then found in the grocery store, and I'm, like, obsessed with it. I'll tell you all about that, and that's all part of Let Me Tell You. But I've got to make room for the show that comes right after the Jonah Hamburg Show. And many of you are stressed out, from the kids to us the grown-ups. If you lived in my house, you wouldn't believe the phone calls I get starting early in the morning. A friend, I think I'm having a heart attack. I can't breathe. Another one, my back is out. My legs hurt. I think I have COVID. And it goes on and on. And one friend who never, ever went to the doctor unless she was really sick said, I like go every day. I literally feel like I can't breathe. So, not that I'm good at it or even do it enough, but the calmest people I know are the people who meditate. The well section of the New York Times, you know, that's the section usually on Tuesdays that gives you tips and information on how to live your life, collected advice from their most popular mental health stories. And they called it How to Improve Your Mental Health in 2022. It's meant to bring calm and clarity into our lives. And they say, give your feelings a name, like to taking a sad day or grieving small losses. One of the things that people told me was incredibly helpful was something called meditating anywhere using a five-finger breathing exercise. If you can do it, it's going to help you, really. It's easy. You don't need any equipment. You can do it anywhere, in your, not in your car if you're driving, but if you're a passenger. This is right from the New York Times. It says, hold a hand in front of you, spread your fingers, trace 
the outside of your hand with the index finger of your other hand, breathing in when you trace up a finger and out when you trace down. Move up and down all five fingers. And when you've traced your whole hand, reverse direction and do it again. If you go on NYT's website, Google NYT's Meditate on the Go. It, honestly, it's I get distracted so easily that meditation is not so easy. But if you can make yourself do it, oh my gosh, it really makes a difference. This practice has been made very popular by Dr. Judson Brewer, who's the person who directs research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. He's got a book called Unwinding Anxiety. And believe me, we all need it. Okay? So, to peace and calm and enough of the virus, I'm Joan Hamburg for WABC. WABC.